Before we start this week's show, I'd like to remind you that the Brazilian Report is funded by subscriptions and support from loyal readers. Besides subscribing to our website and getting exclusive content on Brazil and Latin America, you can also treat our staff to one to five cups of coffee a month. In return, you get exclusive benefits like special newsletters, behind-the-scenes content, as well as a shout-out here on our podcast. Today, I want to thank our Buy Me A Coffee members, Mark Hillary, John Thomas III, Luis Hans, Erwin Menez, Orlando Black, Steve Knapp, Aaron Berger, James Coney, Kars Vresvik, Alasdair Townsend, Peter Abrahamson, Michael Fryer, Miller Renascido, Dima Wolfadejo, David Dixon, Felipe Saito, José Rose Stankovic, Gabriela Graf Innes, Emerging Market Muser, Yarden Iftar, Tonica Thompson, Anderson da Silva, Kat Kramer, Fra, Peter Suffering, Anna Lund, and someone who chose to remain anonymous. If you also believe in the importance of independent journalism, and if you want to hear your name on our podcast, head over to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report and subscribe to one of the membership tiers. If you cannot make a monthly commitment, you can still tip us a cup of coffee every now and then to give us the energy we need to cover a country as complex as Brazil and a region as complex as Latin America. We appreciate all your support. Click on buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report to find out more. The rise of social media has revolutionized how people communicate and consume information, but it has also brought challenges such as the spread of misinformation and hate speech. Multiple countries are beginning to consider the idea of regulating social media to address these issues, and Brazil is one of them. However, regulating social media can also lead to concerns about censorship and infringement of free speech rights. A working group created by the Lula administration will have to thread that needle. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report, and this is Explaining Brazil. Following the January the 8th Brasilia riots, the Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva administration last week created a working group to present strategies and policy solutions to fight extremist acts and hate speech online. The group will operate under the Human Rights Ministry and its first task will be understanding how hate speech spreads on social networks. Speech preaching hate, fascism and Nazism, Human Rights Minister Silvio Almeida said, do not belong in a democracy. They have to be strongly fought before getting to people, he stated. Most of the group's 29 participants have been on the receiving end of social media vitriol, 
particularly from supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro. A protest with similarities to the January 6th insurrection in Washington is currently underway in South America. Breaking situation in Brazil, thousands of supporters of ousted former President Bolsonaro storming the presidential and congressional buildings, demanding he be restored to power. They took selfies, ransack offices, and roamed the halls of Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court, and presidential offices. The committee will be chaired by Manuela Davila, who in 2018 was the vice presidential nominee on the ticket headed by Workers' Party candidate Fernando Haddad, Lula's understudy, and his current finance minister. Mrs. Davila has also received threats, some targeting her six-year-old daughter. To discuss the committee and Brazil's tall challenge to regulate social media, we invited Guilherme Casarões, who will be part of the group. Guilherme is a professor at think tank Fundação Getúlio Vargas and co-founder of the Observatory of the Far Right. Guilherme, welcome back to the show. And to start off our conversation, I would like to ask you to tell us a little bit more about the working group to curb hate speech online how were you approached and what are your tasks that are being laid out? Well, uh, thank you for having me once again. Um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a group that was convened a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, after, of course, the January 8th events. Um, I was approached by the Minister of Human Rights, Silvio Almeida himself, who, who called me and asked me if I wanted to join this working group. Um, we still do not have a lot of information about how it's going to work, whether sessions are going to be uh, virtual or uh, in person in Brasilia. Um, so all I can say for now is that the, the, the main point, especially after January 8th, is to think about strategies to, to curb hate speech, uh, left and right, uh, extremism, and most of all, to, to, prov uh, to think about strategies for reconciling the country. I think that's the most important task of the Lula administration overall. Of course, there are some other uh, very meaningful things Lula has uh, vowed uh, to do during the campaign, such as uh, reducing poverty and inequality. But uh, in the context of a deeply radicalized country, uh, I think it's also important to think about uh, how to, to rebuild the common ground for Brazilians to, uh, to feel that they, they are part of the same society. You know, I think that that's the most important thing. And, and um, that's the, the main reason why this group was formed. Even though we don't have the details, we have a good idea of uh, what daunting tasks we have ahead of us in terms of thinking about strategies uh, for, for containing uh, further extremism uh, and, and, of course, uh, uh, thinking about government-sponsored policies to, to make sure that Brazil uh, will very soon see itself as, as one again. I mean, daunting tasks there are indeed. You are one of the founders of the Observatory of the Far Right, which, among other things, monitor online extremism. It seems as if multiple countries are starting to tackle the issue of misinformation and online hate speech. Is there anything specific about Brazil's struggle with these issues? Or is 
Brazil facing problems that are similar to those being seen in the US or in the rest of Latin America or Europe? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that uh, there, there are a lot of common problems. Uh, Brazil uh, uh, and some other countries in the world have uh, been facing uh, in recent years, especially with the rise of uh, social media um, and, and a new form of political communication overall. I think these are challenges many countries are uh, having to, to face up front. Um, the Brazilian case in particular, uh, I'd say that it, it has uh, a few uh, peculiarities. The first, the first one is, um, unlike other countries where these political movements uh, have developed and surfaced uh, through social media, but they have remained out of power. Um, in Brazil's case, uh, as much as in the United States case, probably, um, the government has actively sponsored uh, disinformation and fake news, uh, building a government, uh, government-led structure of, of lying to the public and building narratives that, that somehow have helped radicalize the country. So um, I think that the, the, the former administration, the Bolsonaro administration, uh, was very much aware that uh, fake news was an integral part of its governing capacity and its governing strategy. And that's the reason why from early in Bolsonaro's presidential campaign, as early as 2016 or 17, all the way through the end of his administration, there has been a lot of uh, social media use uh, to spread this information and to uh, blatantly lie to people. Um, and, and, and of course, uh, the, the, the underlying strategy behind it is uh, we need to build narratives based on lies, based on distorted uh, notions of history and of politics because uh, we need to fuel hate and we need to fuel a resentment uh, among Brazilians. So that's pretty much what they have done. Um, and, and there's a fundamental difference between Brazil and the United States in this regard, because uh, the, the, the fake news and disinformation structures in the United States uh, have been around for much longer. And uh, uh, when Trump came around in 2015, 2016, uh, he benefited from uh, a structure that was pretty much uh, already in place. Uh, if you think about the the alt right in the United States, for example, which which is a movement that dates back to the early 2000s, so Trump was just a beneficiary of all that. Um, in, in in Brazil's case, though, Bolsonaro was both. Uh, uh, a beneficiary and a, a, an active participant and creator of this movement uh, since he decided to run for president, um, I don't know, 2015 or 2014. So um, I, I think that uh, that makes the Brazilian case very unique because um, politics has become infused with these strategies Um and, and I, I even developed a, an academic thesis about it, which is the Americanization of Brazilian politics. Somehow, Bolsonaro has been able to warp uh, Brazilian politics to fit into the American culture wars. So the language, the conspiracy theories, the strategies, they've been um, mimicking 
the the uh, American culture war for for most of it um, over the last couple of years. So I, I think that Brazil is peculiar because of that, and, and, and of course, if we consider other elements such as uh, religion, such as the role of the military as active players in this. Uh, misinformation slash fake news structures, I think that Brazil's, uh, Brazil provides a, a very uh, challenging, but also very uh, complete case study for other countries to analyze if they want to uh, fight uh, uh, this kind of radicalization uh, online. And, um, and there's something else I, I would say which uh, if you if you look at the trajectory of uh, the Bolsonaro administration, it becomes uh, very, very clear. Um, the, the Brazilian case is also challenging because um, the way the way conspiracies have been uh, have been put together, the way conspiracies have uh, have worked um, it, it, it provided for a, a major challenge for Brazil's democracy because the main the main uh, element, the main aspect, uh, besides of course fueling hate, uh, hate and, and, and resentment, uh, was to challenge Brazil's political institutions. Um, somehow, if you compare uh, Brazilian the Brazilian experience to the United States, for example. Um, in the United States, there seems to have been, of course, a lot of conspiracy theories going around regarding uh, the deep state and all that. Uh, but there was uh, a sense of uh, preserving uh, the U.S. democratic institutions. And in the case of Brazil, maybe thanks to our military dictatorship past, which is very recent, by the way, uh, thanks to uh, Bolsonaro's uh, militaristic and, and radicalized rhetoric, I think that uh, most of these uh, structures of fake news were directed at Brazil's democratic institutions. So uh, another uh, thing that other countries might study, might want to study about Brazil, is how the Supreme Court has responded to these um, challenges. Um, very controversial decisions have been made, of course, uh, if you think about Alexandre de Moraes, for example. But I, I'd say that uh, this is also something that we, we have to analyze, both in the working group, uh, but also as an international case study. I mean, how the Supreme Court has uh, struggled to preserve democracy in a very hostile environment. At UNESCO's recent Internet for Trust conference, Brazil supported a global effort to regulate social media platforms and, quote, correct the distortions of a business model that generates profit through the exploitation of users' personal data. Doesn't it seem, though, like a tall order to aspire a sort of global regulatory effort on online speech? I mean, is that even realistic? Well, I think that uh, what's realistic about it is to think of a framework for uh, national discussions around fake news and uh, online disinformation structures. So I think this is one thing. Of course, UNESCO, uh, as, as part of the United Nations family, it has a very powerful uh, recommendatory power, right? So it, it can, as I said before, provide a framework for further discussions about it, both on regional 
and on national levels. Uh, but it's very hard to enforce, of course, if you think about a, a worldwide regulation of online speech. That's very hard to attain, um, not only because uh, I don't think there would be consensus around it, but also because uh, countries have uh, already begun dealing with it on a national level with their own specific legislations. And I think this is even a bigger issue than just online uh, hate speech. If, if you think about the regulatory um, discussions around uh, privacy, data usage, uh, freedom of speech that we see in Europe and the United States and in some non-Western countries like India, uh, these are all very different from each other. So, Again, I think UNESCO's efforts are very important in terms of establishing some, you know, laying the groundwork, establishing some common ideas around which something can be built on a national level, but it would be uh, too utopian, I'd say, to think of a, a global regulatory framework at this point. Guilherme, the Supreme Court in the U.S. is looking at cases that could completely alter social media and internet regulations. But the court has a conservative majority. If the U.S. Supreme Court adopts a hands-off approach, can we in Brazil do something about it, considering that most social media companies are based in the U.S.? I think that we have two problems there. The first one is... Uh most countries, especially Western countries, they look up to the United States as a source of uh, legitimacy to whatever they're doing nationally. So um, we've seen this happen in, in Brazil, for example, over the last four years. I mean, most of Bolsonaro's uh, narratives and uh, even some of his policy decisions have been uh, legitimized by uh, a comparison with the United States. So... Um, in a way, if they adopt a hands-off approach uh, there, uh, we might have people uh, crying out for a hands-off approach here, uh, completely disregarding the, the fundamental uh, principle and legal differences that we have between both countries. Uh, we know that the United States is a country where uh, freedom of speech is uh, sacred. In, in many ways, uh, it's very hard to, to uh, think of censorship of any kind in, 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 the America, uh, in the American legal framework because freedom of speech is so important. If you think about the First Amendment, for example, um, which, which goes beyond freedom of speech, of course, but the very idea of people being uh, able to, to speak their mind and say whatever they want, even if it's hate speech is a typically American thing. Uh, it has no uh, resonance with the Brazilian legislation, for example. We are much, uh, much more strict in terms of uh, fighting and punishing hate speech. Uh, and one of the discussions that we've seen over the last years has been about like previous censorship over over uh, attempts of overthrowing democracy, for example. So I, I think that uh, it, it might complicate things a little bit in terms of uh, legislators in Brazil looking up to the United States and saying, okay, we have to follow the same path. Uh, but I think that the, the broader public is aware 
that the logic of freedom of speech in Brazil is is very different, um, not to mention other countries, of course. But in the case of Brazil in particular, I think um, it, it might affect, but not too much. Now, when it comes to the role of the big techs, uh, one of the efforts of many countries, including Brazil, is to nationalize their policies, their their terms, right? So um, I don't think that would be a problem either because um, if the United States Supreme Court decides it's up to the big tech companies to decide what's right and what's wrong, um, yet uh, the Brazilian uh, legal framework would not allow big techs to, to adopt rules that uh, differ that much from what's considered a crime or not um, to the eyes of the Brazilian legislation. So I, I think that most big techs will have to adapt to national realities, which are fundamentally different from the ones that they have in the, in the United States. And of course, since uh, big techs are uh, driven, obviously, by, by profit, I don't think that would be a problem. Uh, if you think about big countries like India and Brazil uh, that have millions, millions, maybe hundreds of millions of users uh, of these platforms, I don't think big techs will uh, take the risk of being shut down in countries like that because they do not follow the law uh, just because they 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 think that they, their own standards of freedom of speech is the right one to follow. Brazil already has a legal framework for the internet passed in 2014. So that is very recent, especially if we compare to the U.S.'s Section 230, which was enacted in 1996. How can the law keep up with rapidly changing technology? Because we saw during the 2022 election that moderating content online is like playing a really, really hard game of whack-a-mole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that the, the, the fact that our uh, Marco Civil or civil framework uh, is recent reflects uh, different, different paces of um, the internet uh, usage and evolution in, in, in Brazil. I mean, Brazil lagged behind in several respects um, when it comes to the use of uh, social media, for example. And, uh, and legislators were probably busy with other things. And uh, that's why it took them a long time to think about a, a common ground for, for internet use, use in, in Brazil. Um, but I think that th this is a bigger challenge. It's not just about Brazil or the United States or uh, any other country for that matter. I think that uh, uh, technology poses challenges to the law uh, every single day. Um, with the rise of artificial intelligence, for example. I mean, it's not just the law, really. If you think about it, I'm, I'm a university professor. Uh, we, we face challenges, including regulatory challenges, uh, regarding artificial intelligence and chat GPD and, and uh, everything else that's coming around uh, on a daily basis. So uh, I think that maybe uh, one of the problems that we're going to face in Brazil in particular is that we have a very divided Congress right now, uh, and therefore, that's probably going to make a consensus around new technologies emerging and, and challenging the law um, virtually impossible, um, especially now that we have a, a very conservative uh, group 
in, in, in Congress, which is probably more conservative than ever before. Uh, but yet, I think that uh, th- this is a natural discussion for, for most uh, democracies around the world. I mean, how to keep up with uh, changes and challenges uh, posed by technology. And, uh, and I think that Brazil has a very uh, avant-garde <laughs> legislation regarding uh, internet use. So I, I think this is a challenge for pretty much every single democracy out there to keep up with the challenges and and the the changes of technology. Um, but in in the case of Brazil, I think that we have a very avant-garde legislation when it comes to internet use, and therefore, if we combine the precedents opened by the Brazilian Supreme Court regarding elections, electoral rules, and and fake news uh, uh, legislation on the one hand and um, our existing legislation on the other. I think that uh, we might uh, get to some very good results. You mentioned at the beginning of their conversation that the idea of the working group on hate speech came in the aftermath of the January the 8th Brasilia riots. Now, when there are attempts to act following a traumatic event like that, isn't there a huge risk of overcorrecting the problem? Well, I I understand your question, but I I don't think that's the case because um, the idea of fighting hate speech came well before the January 8th attacks. I mean, this is something that many people, including myself, have been discussing on an academic level and on a policy level. So, uh, and this is also something that uh, the Brazilian Congress has also attempted to address before. So, I, I don't really think that we are, uh, we, we, we have been summoned because of January 8th. Of course, uh, it, it sort of accelerates the process in the sense that um, after what we saw, after this uh, upfront attack against Brazil's democracy, it seemed clear that um, this kind of discussion cannot wait because, of course, uh, there uh, some people might just come around and try to overthrow Brazil's democracy once again. Uh, we know that there are uh, political problems within the Lula administration when it comes to the relationship with the military, for example, and the relationship with some security forces uh, on the state level. So uh, the the working group as I understand it, and as I said, I have no specific information about how it's going to work uh, yet, but uh, I don't think that the working group will be attached to the events of January 8th, especially because um, there are many investigations, uh, ongoing investigations on January 8th, and um, they are completely disconnected from uh, our long-term task, which is to fight hate speech um, whenever and whatever it takes place. So um, I, I, I fear no risk of overcorrecting in this regard. Um, first of all, because it's just a working group. We have no uh, policy power. Uh, the minister does, of course, but we have only uh, the power of discussing and suggesting strategies, pathways, and solutions for that. Um and I think it's a long-term task. Um, I, I, I've been saying this in, in some other interviews. I, I don't think that Brazil will be able to uh, get back to its 
feat in terms of uh, social or societal unity um, in the in 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 the the next four years. This is a task for a generation. And, and of course, uh, as for me, <laughs> I would I would love to keep helping uh, Brazil uh, uh, fight hate and 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 reconcile. And, and, but but we understand that this is not something that we uh, will be able to achieve in a matter of a, a few weeks or a few meetings. So I, I think that we are very conscious. I, I've spoken to some of the other members of the working group, and I think that we we are very conscious altogether that uh, this is a, a very slow-moving process, and it has to be uh, very carefully thought because um, if, if policies emerge from this working group, these have to be policies for uh, the Brazilian democracy, not policies for one government or another. Prior to setting up the working group you are a part of, the new government had created two departments to purposely fight disinformation. But some, notably on the right, fear that the solution may just create new problems. They remember Lula's first spell in office during which the government submitted a bill proposing the creation of a federal journalism council, which would be a body similar to those regulating physicians and lawyers. And per the proposal, journalists that violated the organization's principles could have been banned from working. Now, the bill was lambasted by mass media at the time, and it was voted down on the House floor. In 2004, Lula also ordered the revocation of a New York Times journalist's visa after he wrote that allies of the then-president were concerned by his drinking habits. The move was of course, unsurprisingly met with backlash and that forced Lula to backtrack. So I'm citing these examples because they are being used by conservatives to say that the Workers' Party is not a good actor to propose speech regulation. Now, my question is, is any political party a good actor to police speech? And in a country as polarized as current Brazil, how can government policies on the issue be seen as legitimate by people on both sides of the aisle? Um, well, I, I think that the Workers' Party's uh, proposals for media uh, control are very often misrepresented by opponents uh, in general. I, I remember the discussions back in 03 or 04 uh, when Lula and Franklin Martins, if I'm not mistaken, uh, were mostly speaking of uh, business monopoly issues. So uh, their fight against uh, uh, corporate media was an economic one, not an ideological one, um, as far as I can remember. Of course, uh, there was the episode involving uh, New York Times correspondent Larry Rotter. But I, I, I think that all in all, if you if you look at the the Workers Party track record, it has been always very uh, even uh, docile with uh, corporate media uh, after these uh, backlashes from from Lula's early uh, early times in office. So I, I think that th there's no one uh, who has the uh, moral authority or legitimacy to police speech. 
Uh, I think that uh, speech can only be uh, fought legally on, on, on legal grounds. And it's not up to the government to make these decisions uh, because if, if it's about legislation, then it's up to the Supreme Court and to Congress to come up with legislations. Of course, the government can propose legislation. It can suggest uh, uh, paths and all. But uh, I'd say that the, the crux of the matter is um, if, if anything is to be done regarding hate speech and extremism, it has to be uh, an all-encompassing uh, all alliance uh, where civil society, uh, academics, journalists, um, business people, uh, activists of all kinds, and political parties will join the, 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 the front of discussion. So th this discussion do does not belong to one party or another. And uh, Silvio Almeida, for example, who's the Minister of Human Rights, um, he's not a, your, your typical Workers' Party uh, member, uh, politician, right? Um, most people who are in this working group are either academics or, or activists with no party affiliation. So um, I think that, uh, well, first of all, the, the, the main goal of the working group is not to police speech. Uh, to begin with. Uh, but I, I'd say that the, the whole point there is um, we are uh, going through a situation where radicalization is a problem for society and is a problem for democracy. And it has to be fought with uh, policy and with the law. Um, we have to think about this for uh, long term. We have to think about long term solutions for that. Uh, and if the president happens to be uh, a Workers' Party president, uh, that's fine. Uh, I would be doing this under any other pro-democracy government, to be sure. Um, so I, I don't think that this discussion is a partisan one. And it cannot be framed as partisan. Otherwise, um, people will just, you know, be chasing their own tail uh, and unable to really... Uh, look into the future and think about the future challenges that we have before the Brazilian society. Guilherme, before I let you go, is there any international benchmark from which Brazil could borrow? Uh, I don't think there is a framework um, that might just, you, you know, serve Brazil's uh, needs uh, as of now, because the European legislation, the European framework is very unique and is very particular to European needs that have been around for decades now. Um, and even within Europe, we see heated discussions about the validity or the legitimacy of uh, a, a, a European Union-wide legislation for freedom of speech or social media use. And I don't think the United States uh, framework is good either because they have very different philosophical positions on freedom of speech, especially among the conservatives, um, which does not suit Brazilian needs either. So uh, I think that uh, what we have to look into is the precedents established by uh, the Bolsonaro administration, the, the Supreme Court decisions on uh, electoral rules, and we have to improve them, right? And of course, to do away with whatever didn't work, um, 
whatever has actually damaged the discussion more than healed it. So uh, I think that we have to analyze uh, everything that happened over the last four years when it comes to political communication and, and disinformation structures to learn from them and to, of course, prevent that these things happen again. Even though I, I understand, and as you've just said as well, it's an uphill battle, right? It's very hard to find this information in a, in a deeply unregulated environment such as the internet. So um, even if it's not in the surface, sometimes it's out there in, 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 in the deep. So I, I don't know. I, I, I'd say that uh, we, we have to come up with, with our own solutions. Uh, there might be uh, good examples here and there of specific measures that have been taken to find, um, for example, uh, WhatsApp use for uh, spreading fake news. Um, I know that India has had some interesting experiments regarding uh, discussion between the government and, and big techs, but it's still in its infancy. So I think that uh, for what it's worth, I think that Brazil has to look uh, inward and learn from its own challenges and mistakes uh, that have been made recently. Guilherme Casarões, thank you very much for talking to us again. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, my pleasure. Guilherme Casarões is a professor at think tank Fundação Getúlio Vargas and co-founder of the Observatory of the Far Right. If you like Explaining Brazil, please give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It takes only a second, and that really helps us reach a broader audience. Or better yet, sign up for the Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model, and your memberships fuel our journalism. Thanks to our subscribers, we have been able to cover Brazil and Latin America extensively, and for our work, we have won or been shortlisted for multiple journalism awards, the latest being the True Story Awards, which selected one of our articles as one of the world's best 94 articles written in 2022. In order to keep doing that work, we need your support. Just go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. Explaining Brazil will be back next week.